Hey folks, welcome back to the Learning Evolution Podcast. Adam with you here as always. And on this week's episode, I'm very pleased to welcome to the show, Hannah Frankman, the founder of Rebel Educator. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because you are the first guest I've had on this show that really specializes more in uh childhood education, K-12 education. A lot of the folks that I talk to are more in the adult education space. But I think that there are some similarities in the problems that we see and really the evolution that we need to see in both those spaces. So I'm very excited to have you on and really talk about your experience and what you're doing. So but before we get into Rebel Educator, I know you have a very lengthy background and let, let's just go all the way back. Um, but you know, what, what was your educational journey? <laughs> That's a big question. Um, I grew up homeschooled, so I, I went to a, a Montessori-inspired preschool and kindergarten, and then first grade through 12th grade, I was homeschooled. So I've been immersed in this world for a very long time, um, long before I, I consciously realized that this was something I was really interested in and wanted to delve deep into. Um, and then I thought all through high school that I was college-bound because I was I was very academic. I loved school. And then slowly realized over the course of my high school career that college wasn't really the best option for me just because I was I already knew how to learn everything that I needed to know and I didn't need anything that required a credential. So and as, as everyone knows, college is very expensive, especially if you don't have a specific major that you want to go into that you know, or a specific field that requires a degree. So I ended up skipping college. Uh, I ran a four-year experiment to see how far I could get without college, and I spent most of that time working for a college alternative program called Praxis, where I learned more than I knew was possible to know about being successful without college. Um, and that's really what springboarded me into working in the education world, which is what I've been doing ever since. That's awesome. You know, as as someone who went to public school and maybe didn't have quite that good of an experience, kind of lost my love of learning and then found it again as an adult kind of on my own and away from traditional schooling and, and programs. I, I think there's a lot of things that resonate with me there. But let's start with this because I know homeschooling, especially in certain circles, has has certain uh, perceptions amongst people. And the Just common the things that I tend <laughs> to hear is that people, yeah, um, that people won't uh, get certain, you know, the education isn't consistent, or they might miss certain things, or there's always like the socialization argument. So what was Maybe just your specific experience, and then we can maybe talk about the bigger trends that you see now that you work with a lot of people in that space. Yeah, there's a lot to delve into here, and I get um, a lot of a lot of pushback when I talk on Twitter about some of these things. Like, it really is for the amount of homeschoolers that there are in the U.S. and and it's estimated that this year there's something like 11 percent of American kids are being homeschooled, which is crazy. Um, I don't know how accurate those stats are because you kind of have to patch them together state by state, but but that's what's what's been circulating the numbers, which would be amazing if they're true. Um, but even with those types of numbers, I get so much pushback from people on topics like socialization and well, how are you going to get a job and how are you going to get into college if you want to get into college if you're, you know, just like sitting around talking to mom all day, um, and that really, like it's my experience has been the polar opposite of that. I. I've landed jobs because I was homeschooled. And the first two people I ever worked for, both times when I interviewed with them, they said almost verbatim, we love homeschoolers. Like it was, they'd worked with homeschoolers before and they liked homeschoolers and they wanted to work with others. And it's because there's a level of self-direction that homeschoolers are able to 
to develop that you just can't get when you're sitting in a classroom all day and you're not given the chance to try your hand at autonomy. And when you're, you know, like when every portion of your day is already decided for you, where are you going to develop things like self-direction and self-ownership and and learning how to set a goal and then go figure out how to attain it and then attain it yourself. And you see this trend even in like university admissions teams often, not always, not across the board, Mm -hmm. but a lot of admissions departments love homeschoolers too because homeschoolers acclimate to college so much faster, the ones who do take the college route, because they've already been doing the things that, that trip the public school kids up, like being responsible for organizing their day and making sure that they're getting all of their work done without having somebody give them a, a spoon fed schedule. Um, so my experience, like I, I was socialized, very socialized all the way through. Like we were part of homeschool co-ops, my family, and I was able to, to meet kids my own age that way. But I also like, I was out interacting in the real world with my family from a really young age. And I was able to like, you know, you learn socialization skills, not just from playing with your peers, but from like going to the post office and talking to the people who work there and like running into the library and and learning how to manage checking library books in and out and handling those types of transactions and paying for something at the store and all of these things that are core parts of of day-to-day life that you need to learn how to do. Um, You have the freedom to to do that when when you're not stuck in a classroom. And so a lot of these stereotypes about homeschoolers, like, yes, sometimes it's true, but there are also public school kids who never become comfortable interacting with the world and and having and navigating social situations it's it's much less a homeschooler thing and much more of a people who have are in school their whole lives don't know what to do with homeschoolers so they just write them off as weird because they're different yeah and and i'm sure some are um, but i think you made that good point that you know there are people who have bad homeschool experiences and people have bad public school experiences um i i was one of them um, not anything traumatic necessarily, but I didn't feel like my educational needs were being met. And I think there's a lot of people out there and, and the data kind of backs us that the results really aren't aren't cutting it. Um, it's even worse today than it was when you and I were growing up. Um, and speaking of that, so like, you know, homeschooling, you, you gave some numbers and it's grown a lot over the years. But w- when you were growing up, it was probably much, much smaller. So kind of a two-part question is one, what was it, taught by your parents and two, were you doing it solo or did you have siblings or other people in the community that were going through it with you? Yeah. So I have one younger sister. Um, she's six years younger than I am. So there was, I I was definitely the experiment kid and they had a few years of experimentation (laughs) before they got to her. Um, but it was my parents primarily who were teaching us, but primarily my mom. Um, and we, so I, I was being homeschooled in the early 2000s. Um, and there was, you know, there was a lot more support than there'd been in, in the nineties. It was definitely less of a weird thing than it had been a decade prior, but it was a lot less common still than it is today. So we had, um, and I grew up in, in Eastern Pennsylvania, like a fairly, populated part of the country so there were a lot of people in general around so there were a fair amount of other homeschoolers and so there were different homeschool groups in my county that we connected with and that we we tried out and we found one that we liked and we took classes there for a few years and those were like you know it was it was socialization for for all of the kids who was like a chance to hang out with other kids their age and make friends um 
but it also was like a lot of homeschool groups outsource things that the parents can't teach. So like we would hire naturalists at the county park to teach science classes and we would hire a drama teacher who worked at the local theater to teach a drama class and we would hire a Spanish teacher to teach a Spanish class and because all of the families are pooling the resources together to hire each of these teachers for like an hour or two hours a week um, it's a really effective way to expose your kids to some of these subjects that you might not feel competent teaching at home and so this homeschool co-op idea um, I don't actually know for sure when it became more common. Definitely in the 90s, it was an emerging phenomenon. And by the time my family came along on the homeschool scene, it was it was fairly common. Um, so we had support there. But the bulk of the education was taught by my mom when I was in like elementary school into middle school and then middle school into high school. We started tapping into a lot more online resources, so like recorded lecture series from the great from the teaching company and Khan Academy on YouTube and like different types of resources like that. There's so much out there that's available to parents, which I think is one of the biggest things that parents don't realize when they're thinking about homeschooling. They're like, yeah, I can't homeschool my kid because I wasn't good at math. So there's no way I can teach my kid math. And that's really not true because there's so much out there that you can use to support. It really requires like the parent doesn't really have to teach everything. They just have to be able to facilitate finding everything for their kid and then playing a support role to help them find whatever resources are missing or answer whatever questions they have. You don't actually have to be the expert to be a teacher. Yeah, that's good that you mentioned that because that's another argument I hear that the opponents to homeschool will talk about is the la- lack of uh, specialization or you know credentialized expertise that a homeschooling parent may, may have. Um, and and we'll get more into like what those resources look like today because I'm sure that's even grown since when you went through it. Um, but I think that the last thing I'm interested in from that experience you had, you know, you talked about going from your your homeschool through through the high school period and then straight into the job market. And I know you said some employers found that valuable that you had that experience. But but I'm interested to know, you know, a, a lot of people don't don't make that unless they're going into the trades or something like that they don't make that transition from high school directly into the job market so you know t- talk a little bit about what that was was like was it entry level you know frontline job or did you actually go into some kind of specialty that that you had prepared for with that you know autonomy and the the skills that you had built through the homeschooling that's a really great question um so i was always very entrepreneurial for context i started my first business when i was 12 Um, so I was like, I always had a a very opportunistic spark. Um, so my first job, which I landed while I was still in high school, I worked for a a vegetable farm and orchard and I worked there for three years. And so like through the end of high school and into the beginning of my, my post high school career. And I started out just like general farmhand kind of like, you know, it was like, we were like a, a, a market farm. So we were selling, you know, like we had vegetable fields that I was working in and I was like picking apples in the orchard and stuff. And then I became more specialized over my time there. So I ended up managing like most of their vegetable uh, processing and distribution, which is really cool because I gained a lot of managerial experience. I gained office experience, um, like a lot of logistics management stuff. Like, okay, we have X amount of produce coming in this week. I need to make sure that all of our CSA members are getting taken care of. I need to make sure that we're sending things to the right farmer's markets where they're going to sell Um, so that was a really cool experience and that gave me like a really great foundation to go transfer out of the more blue collar world and into 
like the more more traditional business world. Um, and at the same time, I also started teaching writing courses to my old homeschool group, which was my first foray into like actually working in education as an adult. Um, that's where I really realized that I had a love of teaching and that's where the entrepreneurial spirit kind of picked back up. I was like, oh, there's an opportunity to go teach writing to homeschool kids. I would like to do that. I'm going to go start a little business doing this. Um, and then my second like official W2 job, I worked at a farm supply store for a year while I was like figuring things out and kind of getting, getting my different ventures and stuff off the ground. And then um, my third real job, which I landed when I was 19, was Praxis. And so that was like, you know, true deep in the weeds startup job. And I started there as an intern and like they were really big on alternative education. So they thought it was cool that I was homeschooled. They thought I'd fit right in and they were right. Um, and so I moved into the more kind of like traditional career track kind of world fairly quickly. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say so at 19, that's, you know, for people, I, I worked my way through college. And so I, I had jobs starting at 16, but they were mostly like food jobs and then into retail. And I didn't get my first what I would consider real job until I was 24. And I would say most people going through college aren't getting their first real job until post-college. And some people today, you see them getting a degree and going into and I'm not belittling these jobs, but they're going to work at Starbucks or in retail or something that really shouldn't require that college degree that could have been done much earlier. So, so yeah, I mean, you're ahead of the game by 19 getting a career track job. So let, let's transition to that, that Praxis phase because I, I'm familiar with Praxis because I've done a lot of research lately on alternative higher education and Praxis is one of the, the institutions out there that seems like it's really evolving what that game is. So for anyone in the audience who's unfamiliar with Praxis, how would you describe it? Praxis is a is a college alternative program, um, and it's a startup apprenticeship program. So basically, it helps young people go land full-time paid apprenticeships at startups doing non-technical roles like sales, marketing, customer success, operations, um, for most of their participants instead of taking the traditional college route to go to go get their first business experience. So um, the first portion of the program is a boot camp where you learn a bunch of different professional skills and you build out a portfolio of projects where you basically do the types of work that you want to go land a job doing at a startup. So you'll land, you'll do like, if you're interested in marketing, you'll do marketing projects where you'll put together, like you'll spend a month building out social media content and a social media strategy for a company that you think is cool. Um, or if you're interested and you'll go learn like how SEO works and you'll, you'll write SEO optimized blog posts, like you'll do the types of things that you would be doing on the job. And then when you actually go into the job hunt and you start pitching companies, you are able to look for open opportunities that fit the type of work you want to do. And then you can take this, portfolio that you've built of projects you can send that to them and say hey i might not have resume experience saying i've done this for three years but you can see exactly the quality of work i'm able to produce and this is why you should hire me and that's a pretty effective strategy to go break into the job market so like we have a we are when we when i was with them and they still do um they have a a, a process where they have advisors and coaches that are helping the participants go navigate this job hunt process and then once you land the job, you get like six months of coaching for those those initial months on the job before you graduate from the program. So it's a really interesting way for students to 
bypass this whole credentialing route where you spend four years in business school and then like maybe you go get an MBA, maybe not. And then you like do some internships and you kind of try to figure out what you want to do. And then you're like, okay, well now I have to really have to land a job because I'm a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Um, it's a much faster approach to getting the things that actually matter for landing a job and then like getting the the hands-on experience on in the market. Yeah, that's cool. And, and it doesn't, it's obviously not a trade school because you talked about very in-demand jobs like marketing and SEO. Um, you know, sometimes we think the college alternatives is you have to go be a plumber or a welder, which actually those kind of jobs pay really well today too. Um, now, are, are there, how, how would you compare the variety of routes that someone who goes to Praxis could go versus when you go to a four-year institution, you have, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of different degree specialties you could get? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a huge variety. We have had people, like, there are people that I coached who went through Praxis over the years who've gone on to be um, business owners in, in various capacities. Um, you, people who are C-level executives at different companies. We've had people start crypto startups. We've had people start fitness startups. We've had people become, like, start full-time businesses as executive assistants. Um, we've had people go on to be like six figure freelance copywriters, um, full-time professional artists, videographers, podcasters, and then beyond that, like kind of the more traditional roles that Praxis specializes in, which is these like non-technical roles at like career roles at startups. Like we've had lots of people go on to build sales careers, um, become like the hub of a customer support team, um, all different types of, of, of marketing professionals. So it definitely is like the types of roles that Praxis helps you land in the program are, are fairly specialized. Um, but the, the places that those types of roles and those types of experiences can take you is pretty broad because really what you're doing is you're, you're learning the fundamental skills to, to navigate a career um, everything from the interpersonal skills of like, how do you talk to people? How do you manage relationships with people? How do you sell people on an idea that you have all the way through to like, okay, how do you go learn a, a hard skill that you need to actually execute on this project that you want to accomplish? And all of those things apply to all different arenas. Um, like those things are important if you want to be a real estate agent someday, or if you want to start your own business, or if you want to write novels and sell them, like all of these different things require these fundamental skills. So the places that you can take them are, are very broad. Like I never officially went through Praxis. I worked for them as an intern. So I basically got the Praxis experience. I just got paid for it. Um, but I, I, and then I worked for them for years. So you know, like I'm, I'm, I came out of, of like the same sort of foundational set of experiences that anyone who does the program went through and I'm not working in like an official sales capacity or marketing capacity or anything like that. I'm doing my own thing, but the foundation was really helpful in learning how to go navigate this world. So I, this is kind of a long winded answer, but it's, it's pretty broad. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. It sounds like there might be certain specialties if certain people want, you know, a microbiology degree or you want a computer engineering degree there, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily cover every scope of everything. But what I liked about what I heard there is the skills that are actually needed in the workplace. Cause one thing that, that I've noticed is a very big flaw of what a lot of degree programs do is, is they, 
they give you these these modularized courses that make up a degree program, but then people get into the workplace having gotten this degree, even if they're working in their specialty, and they're missing a lot of those. The the you know you you take these long writing courses in college and in high school, and yet when you get to the real world, you have to write things in short, uh, you know, convincing ways. You have to write a memo or an email or a one pager. Um, you have to like sell your ideas to the C suite, and so. Those type of skills and and I've, you know, developed a lot of people fresh out of college and they don't have those. And so then you have the workplace that has to now develop those skills and you spend a lot of time and money doing it for people who even have college degrees. So that's great. And um, just to share a few things that I know I've been researching higher education a lot lately and I'll put these links for the the listeners at home. But college costs have soared 180 percent in the last 20 years. Um, enrollment is actually down 10% since the last two years. So less people are going than in 2020. Um, I know you mentioned a hundred thousand dollars. I hear those kind of numbers, but it sounds like for public school, it's $30,000 is the average debt that people get. And then over 50% of people don't even work in their area of specialty. So you have all these challenges with our college system. And the only argument that seems like the public is having is, should we forgive $10,000 of debt or not? We're not addressing the real problem. Um, it's four years or more. How how long is the Praxis program, and and how do the costs compare to what a traditional four year university would be? Yeah, one more note on on the stats that you just shared. Don't quote me on this for certain because it's been a while since I've seen these numbers. But I'm pretty sure a few years ago it was like thirty percent of college students or something were defaulting on their loans too. So it's not just that they're not working in, not going into fields where they where they're not using their degree, they're also not making enough money to pay it back. It's, 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 it's pretty bad. Um, so call it Praxis is a year. It's a 12 month program. Um, and it costs $12,000 and participants are guaranteed to make back more than that initial 12,000. Most of them are making 15,000 at minimum over the course of that six month apprenticeship. So they're making back the full cost of the program while they're in the program. I mean, obviously you have like living expenses and stuff, so it's not like, you know, probably not everything you're making in those first six months is going directly to your tuition payment, but like you're you're guaranteed to break even, um, and and then you know you're like you're you're on a trajectory to be consistently making um, like a starting salary in like a sales role or a marketing role, which is typically a lot more than like a starting salary working in in retail coming out of college. Um, so the idea is to set participants up to. To, to make back that cost and then quite a bit more very quickly. Like it's, a, it's intended to be a financially savvy decision. Yeah, that's, so it sounds like of that year program, this, there's six months of that that's a paid apprenticeship. So it's six months of kind of coursework and building that portfolio. And then the other six months is, is placement that Praxis helps the students get the jobs. Yeah, it's actually it's 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 six months of boot camp plus placement process, and then the second six months are spent actually working on the job and getting coaching and support. That's awesome. And and during that uh, time on the job, Praxis is still involved with them. It's not like they're handing it over to the employer. You know, Praxis is still involved with developing those students. Yep, exactly. That sounds very different from the traditional, you know, college experience that most people have because most people it's you're in college and then you go look for a job post-college and if you get a really high demand degree 
usually don't have too much trouble finding a job after school. There's certain, you know, and any kind of coding or engineering degrees and, and any kind of complex, complex science degrees, those kind of things get, get placed very, very well. But then there's a lot of that. That's a small percentage of people getting college degrees. And, you know, the people getting any kind of humanities degree, liberal arts degrees, uh, business degrees, even, you know, you're a little bit more on your own. The school might help you depending on what school. So I, I really like that it, it translates into a real world result for people. And I don't know if you have this number, but is there, do you have any stats on like success rate? Like are, are most of the students getting placed into a job um, versus like, you know, in college, there's probably not a percentage you can, you know, talk about of people making good money that first year after, after getting a degree. Yeah. I don't know the exact number. Um, it's also been a while since I've, worked with Praxis. So, so numbers may have changed. Um, but I want to say it's over 90%. And some of those people who aren't getting placed are people who are opting out of it because they're like, Hey, actually, I want to go become a a freelance writer and I'm going to go like figure out how to start my own thing. Um, so it's a pretty high, like the, 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 um, the application process is pretty intensive. Um, they don't have a high acceptance rate, but, but for people who actually make it into the program, it's, it's a pretty high success rate. That's good to hear. Well, um, I'll, I'll, I know you're not with Praxis, but I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone that's listening at home that's interested in in learning more about it because I think it's a really cool alternative. I, I've seen a lot of alternatives to traditional school. I know Google's doing like technical certificates now and, um, you know, different people are trying to kind of shake up the university space. Like I know you're shaking up the K-12 space. So, that's probably a good time for us to transition to Rebel Educator, your organization that you founded. So um, wh- what is Rebel Educator and what are you offering to parents and to students more in the K-12 space? Yeah, we're, we're, tra- we're, we're building a, ken- a content hub and a resource hub for parents who know that the public education system isn't doing it for their kids. And they know that there's got to be something better out there, but they don't know where to start. Um which is, you know, that that's a big conversation to have because there are a lot of people like it's it's an interesting time to be in the education space. There are a lot of people who are really unhappy with the status quo of education, but it's really hard to find options and to find data on what's out there and what's working and what outcomes of these different options are like. And so that's that's the gap that we're filling. Um, we want to be the starting point for parents who are looking for something other than public school. And we want to build a huge content library of resources and anecdotes and jumping off points for these parents to go find the ideal education for their kid. Because our, you know, our, our, our core philosophy or part of our core philosophy is that there, there is no one size fits all education option for every child. There's there's a lot of different education options and there's a lot of different types of kids. And it's, you know, a broad, a broad array of, of what's a mix, what's a match for different, for different kids. Um, but public school definitely isn't it for almost everyone. And we can do so much better. And there are a lot of really amazing entrepreneurs who are out there building fantastic schools and alternatives for kids. And we're trying to close that gap for parents to be able to, to find those options and, and offer them to their kids so that their kids can be truly set up to thrive. That's great. And I, I heard you mention the word people founding alternative schools. So it doesn't sound like this is just a resource hub for people who want to homeschool. If they want to fu- look into alternative schooling options, private schools or charter schools, th- 
that is also included with what you're offering as well. Yeah, 100%. We're very pro everything that's not traditional school. And so by traditional school, I mean what happens in a, in a public school classroom and and everything that mimics the the model of the public school classroom. So a lot of charter schools are very similar to the traditional education model. Um, a lot of homeschooling is very similar to the traditional education model where people think, like, I don't want my kid in, in school for whatever reason because they're getting bullied or they're getting exposed to this thing that I don't want them to be exposed to. But I'm going to come home and, and replicate what's happening in school every day from like eight to three in in at my kitchen table. And that's not really what we're promoting. We're promoting like truly innovative um, expansive ways of educating kids. And that, that, cro- that, ex- that crosses a very broad spectrum of different online schools that are emerging, um, micro schools, homeschooling pods, unschooling, uh, in-person private schools of different flavors and varieties. There's a lot out there. Um, and we're, we're trying to build a central conversation around all of it. Okay, great. So it's, it's not like, you know, public school bad, all these other options good. It's more of looking at different from the traditional schooling model. So let's dive into that a little bit. I know, you know, we have a schooling model that's built on something that was started in Europe in the mid 1800s and has changed a bit since then. But more or less, it's a very passive experience for many students. Like you said, it's very one sized fits all. And then over the years, we've seen class sizes grow. We've seen Budgets inflate, but teacher salaries don't really inflate. So that budget all goes to administration and and different things in the background, right? Um, We see a a lot of bullying and violence and uh, a lot of challenges where parents don't – there's a lot of conflicts. I'm not going to get into specific issues here, but a lot of conflicts that parents may have with – uh, certain things that are taught in schools and school boards that don't want to listen to them. We have the whole debacle of what happened in 2020 where there, there was really no control over the type of education children received. So there's all these different things that, I mean, that could be public or private, but that, that just affected the traditional school model. So what are some, um, I guess, some principles or some things that are innovative that, that um, you look at for the schools that you are promoting? Yeah, that's that's a really big question to answer because there's so many different answers to that question. Um, one of the things that I'm very interested in is is student-driven education. So the, the, the public school model um, slash the traditional school model, like the, the version of school that most of us think of when the word school is said, um, it's a very... It's not even really a teacher-centric experience. It's a system-centric experience. And the student is at the bottom of the totem pole in terms of having any sort of pull, having any sort of of say in, in what happens in their education. And I'm a very big fan of flipping that entirely on its head and putting the, the student at the, the central locus of, of control of that education. Um, because kids are really smart and we don't give them enough credit for that. And kids are really capable and we don't give them enough credit for that either. And kids are naturally designed to develop on their own and to learn how to navigate the adult world. Like we would not survive as a species if we weren't wired to do that. There's nothing, there's no historical precedent for, you know, like, well, we have to send kids to these 
these large institutions for 12 years of their lives in order for them to to know how to like feed themselves and 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 gather food and, and navigate the world there you know we've we've raised our children um, among us for centuries and are you know we've done just fine as a species so like we're we're wired to learn and when you go down the rabbit hole and you start to really study and understand how kids develop intellectually like how their brains develop how their how their capabilities develop how their their interests develop you start to realize that one kids are very self-contained and can do quite a bit of their intellectual development especially in their like elementary years mostly on their own like yes they need like this comes with all all sorts of caveats yes they need to be you know in in an environment that's supporting them yes they need modeling of the types of behaviors that you want them to be developing like you can't just sort of like i'm not saying just 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 fling them out into the wild and hope for the best but the level of control over this this development that we think is necessary isn't and there's also a lot to be said like kids develop interests of their own at a very young age and those interests become the the compass of their self-directed curiosity if it's allowed to and those interests tend to develop over the course of their childhood and into their adulthood as as being sort of this this central like the things that they're interested in tend to keep coming back um, they tend to start to lay the foundation for the types of things that they want to do as they become older and they actually start navigating the real world. But kids are so capable. Kids can, you know, kids can write books and kids can start businesses and kids can build buildings and kids can, you know, start a, a, a chicken business in their backyard and sell eggs to the neighborhood. And kids can learn how to code and build an app and kids can kids can do all kinds of things when they're given the space. And so this, this student driven, this child driven model of education where you let your kids curiosities and interests sort of dictate the, the program that is designed for them is very interesting to me. And there's a lot of different models that put varying levels of, of emphasis on that. Everything from, you know, something like unschooling, which which literally is what I just described, like your your kids home all day. And it's like they become really interested in chickens. And it's like, OK, well, why don't we go buy some tools at Home Depot and we learn how to like build a chicken coop and then we can can raise some some laying hens this summer and you can sell eggs to the neighbors um, like that's that's your education. Like you learn math tallying up how much you need to spend on chicken feed and how what you should price your eggs at. So, you know, if you're making a profit um, all the way to like more project-based online schools that are starting to emerge. Like there's a really cool school called Sora. That's an online middle school and high school where kids are, it's, it's very project-driven. Kids choose projects they want to work on and, and, and that's the bulk of their education. And that's, that sort of model is really interesting to me. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's emerging with the sort of the, the explosion of, of access that the internet's offered. So there's, there's a phenomenon called world schooling which is um, like schools that are open to kids all over the globe and it's all online and kids can join classes at whatever time they want with kids all over the world and they can make friends from all over and, and learn about all the different things. Like they can have take a poetry class with kids who like poetry in, in Indonesia and Australia and, and Poland and Brazil and they can make friends from all over. Like there's a lot of things like that that are starting to emerge too. I don't want to get too far down a rabbit hole here because I can go on about this for a really long time. Um, 
I don't know if, if there's somewhere specific you want to direct me from here, but there's there's a lot of interesting stuff that's happening that's that's very exciting to watch. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton to unpack in what you just shared. Uh, you know, I always think about, you look at when kids are passionate about something. Maybe they're passionate about learning about Minecraft, or they start their own YouTube channel, or they are into a sport, or what, whatever the case is, and they will stay up all night diving into that and you don't see that as often traditionally in the academic realm. And I, my feeling, this is just my personal feeling, is they, they just feel like teaching or learning is like a punishment because they're forced to do things they don't want to do. I know that's how I felt. I, I was like a straight A student until I got to high school. And then I found things that were more interesting to me that were outside of school. And then I started focusing on those and letting my school suffer. And you see that all over where maybe high-performing students just don't have that fostered. Um, we could probably go in a million directions from what you shared. But, you know, what are, if you're able to share, like you talk about innovative schools. I know you talked about a concept called world schooling. You mentioned Sora. Are there any other like certain people or schools in this space that are really creating innovative alternate school options for parents and children? Yeah, there are so many. Um, I'm going to rattle off a few of my favorites, but the list is is really long. So in the world schooling department, there's a a really cool school called Kubrio, um, K-U-B-R-I-O. Um, and it is it's a world school. It has three time zones. It's Asian time, Europe time and and American time. And you can choose to take classes in your time zone or sometimes kids will opt to take classes in a different time zone because they want to make friends in another part of the world. But it's open to like it's 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 I think it's fairly popular among nomadic families. Um, so you'll get families who are like bouncing between different regions and time zones. Um, but it's a really cool way to both open up access to classes to people all over the world who wouldn't necessarily have them locally, but also for kids to to truly get like a really expanded perspective, not just on like, you know, what what all the kids in my in my corner of Missouri are are interested in, but like what kids from all over the globe are interested in how they think about things. Um, those types of things are really, really exciting to me. Um, there's a really interesting school called the Socratic Experience that, as the name suggests, the whole thing is built on a Socratic dialogue model. So its students spend hours a day in Socratic dialogue and debate with each other. And they just like they get prompted with different questions and topics and they delve in and they explore and they, you know, talk through all these different things and they argue with each other. And they over the course of, of their time in the school, they develop perceptions and, and ideas and opinions on all of these different topics. Um, and it's a really, really interesting way of helping kids develop their their intellectual capabilities. Um, that school is also a really interesting model. There's a, a really interesting, very new company out of Utah called Factor. That's a it's an it's an online program for middle schoolers, um, or I think middle schoolers and high schoolers, and it's. Um, this I bring this one up specifically because it's not a full-time school. It's a 16-week program. And there's a lot of this going on, too, where there's, like, part-time programs that you can pick and choose from and you can, like, put together. Like, you don't even have to choose one school. You can choose all these different programs that you find interesting and, and piece them together to create a customized education experience. But Factor does – it's a 16-week program where its students do micro-internships. 
with people at different companies. And so it's a way for these kids to get some hand on working experience, but also see like what fields are interesting to them and what they might want to do when they come out of high school, which is something, you know, most people get halfway through college before they start doing internships and have that, wait a second, I thought I wanted to do this since I was in third grade, but I actually hate this kind of crisis. Um, and this is a really cool way for kids to, to test some of their hypotheses while they're still in high school and figure out what they want to do next. Um, there's a, a company called Prenda that's based out of, I believe it's based in Arizona. Um, they're in five states currently and, and working to expand, but it's, it's a, a network of micro schools. So the way Prenda works is you have, um, usually it's a parent who will start a micro school. Um, sometimes it's a former teacher and the micro schools are usually it's in somebody's house. So you'll turn your living room into a school for the day. And you'll have like eight to 12 neighborhood kids who come into your micro school. Um, and the way Prenda works is they offer like curriculum and resources and training and all that stuff, but they help these micro school founders access state funding. So the, whatever funding, um, you know, is, is allotted to that kid in a given state goes to the micro school. So if you have like $7,000, per student um, and you've got 12 students in a micro school that's, um, you know, you've got like $84,000 coming in to fund the school and you give like 60,000 of that to pay the teacher's salary and the rest of it goes to Prenda HQ to, to, to pay for the support. Um, like that's a really great way for a community of people to have a free option for besides public school and for teach for, for like a parent to make a full-time living while also supporting the education of their kid. Um, so that's a really interesting model. There's a really big push for state funding to get opened up a little bit around the U.S. Uh, Arizona is a really great example of this. So Prenda is really big in Arizona right now. But that's really exciting to watch, too, like some of these different models that are that are opening up. Um, there's a lot of different online schools that are emerging, too. There's a really cool game-based school called Synthesis that like it's its whole model is like kids are problem solving and, and learning critical thinking skills by playing games online. <laughs> it's, um, it's a really, really cool idea. And, and there's a lot of different things like that emerging. So there's, there's so much, it's a huge space. Yeah. That, that's awesome. Thank you for all those examples. I think the only one I was previously familiar with was synthesis. I followed the founders of that one for a while and I think they're doing some cool stuff. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned like it was what Prenda's doing and and how Arizona is allowing for parents to kind of, if they opt out of the public school option, they can have the funding go with them. Because that's always been another argument is it's it's something that's only available to kind of wealthier people or more people with more means because going to private school or homeschooling, you, you don't have that funding or that, that free option, so to speak, that you would with public school. So what do you do to help parents navigate the and we'll just stick in the u.s i know i have listeners from outside the u.s but you know in different states there's different rules um there's different uh flexibility with with what options you have and how it's funded so how do you help parents to navigate that for their children yeah that's that's a really big question um and that's something that that we're going to get better at too as, as rebel educator expands um like right now when I'm talking to parents, my my first piece of advice is that there are great resources that have been compiled in pretty much every state about like what what the legal requirements are for different options, 
um, what funding is available. And, you know, I, I can help parents figure out what the right questions are to ask. But like my first recommendation is to, to do a deep dive in your state because all of these options have been around long enough that there are people who have put in the work to, to compile everything that you need to know for like, you know, is do I have to legally register my child with the school district if I'm homeschooling them? Do I have to unenroll them from school somehow? Do I have to um, do any type of like standardized testing with them? Or are they like just good to go once they're once they're registered as a homeschooler? In some states, you can just pull your kid out of school and that's it. Nobody ever asks any questions ever again. Um, other states, it's a lot more complicated. And you got to go to like a state certified evaluator who's going to look at your work and, and certify that you're getting a, a proper education. It's a pretty broad spectrum. Um, so, you know, doing research on, on those types of things is really important, but also there's a lot of state funding that's out there that parents have no idea exists. Um, a lot of states have different grant programs for helping students pay for alternative options besides public school. And like everybody knows about Arizona right now because it's just, you know, it's been in the news. It's a big thing. Everybody's watching to see what's going to happen there. But there is funding available in a lot of other states. And that's also a rabbit hole that like it really varies state by state. So again, like if I'm talking to a parent, I can help them figure out some of the right questions to ask. But for now, it's the the infrastructure for information isn't great. And you kind of have to go do some digging. But there are a lot of really great people who are also working on building out more comprehensive resources. And these are the types of questions that like rebel educators still really knew. But these are some of the types of questions that that we're going to help answer too um so so hopefully we'll have a lot more like jumping off point resources to point people to over the next few months as 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 we build out our content library a little bit more yeah that that's fair um every state is a bit different and so it, it probably would behoove parents to do the due diligence and make sure they understand what the the rules are and, and like you said any kind of grants or funding that are available in their state um, something I know I alluded to earlier in the conversation, but I, I know it's just become this bigger topic in the last few years, is just whether it's politicians or teachers unions, school boards, there it feels like there's a increasing amount of tension between parent groups and and those more government body type groups over a variety of issues. We don't have to dive into any of the issues specifically. I think what what I'm interested in is how has this kind of conflict between parents and the government bodies that has increased in recent years influenced what you do? I'm not sure that it's directly influenced what I do because a lot of the work that I'm doing, I feel like has been 20 plus years in the making where, you know, I was growing up homeschooled and I was, you know, had a great experience. And then I, I got a little older and I realized not everybody had that. And I was like, well, this is really interesting that this is different. And then I thought about it a little bit more and, and lived a little more and was like, well, I really, I want to talk about this. Um, so I feel like a lot of what I do uh, is, is, is separate from that. Um, but I do think that the, the level of, of interest in this conversation from the sort of community at large has changed dramatically over the past few years. Like I think, and I think COVID marked a really big shift for this. Like there was like around 2008, there was a shift where more people were moving towards alternative schools, private schools, public school enrollment started to decline. 
And then there was another bigger shift around 2020 when everybody brought school home during the pandemic that really accelerated a lot of this because people saw for the first time what was happening in school at a level they hadn't seen before. And there were a lot of people had a wait a second, this is what I'm sending my kid to do every day kind of moment. And so I think people are really hungry for options and for information in a way that they weren't before. And so that's really shaped like there are a lot of people who are excited to have this conversation um, which is very exciting to me because it's obviously something I care a lot about. So if people if people want to want to talk to me about it, I'm I'm uh, that makes me excited. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily shifted what what I'm saying. It's more um, like I feel like other people see it too, see what I've been seeing for a long time, and that's that's fun. Yeah, yeah. So rather than adjusting your approach or influencing what you're doing, it might be just creating more demand for what you're doing because more people are recognizing the flaws in the old system. Um, I think the last question in in this realm, we've been talking a lot about the parents and and the students. Also, I see a very big trend today of transitioning teachers and for a variety of reasons, Um, you know, public school teachers specifically do a lot of them are very passionate. They do a lot of work. Their, their pay is challenging. They have restrictions all over the place. And then we have all these, more recent challenges, some we just highlighted. And I see it a lot in my space. A lot of teachers want to transition from public school teaching over to corporate training or learning and development. And and they feel like maybe that's their only path to get out of teaching is to go teach or instruct adults in the corporate world. Do, do you work at all with former teachers who want to they still want to teach kids, but they just are so burnt out on the old system and they want to find something new. Yeah. I've talked to, I've spoken to quite a few of them. Um, and it's actually, it's really interesting to see the the spectrum of, of options that they start to gravitate towards. There are a lot of people who, um, a lot of former teachers who are really intrigued by the micro school movement because it allows them to go start a small school and to run the education philosophies that they feel like work best from their experience in the field, but that public school maybe wasn't allowing them to do anymore and work with a group of kids that they can really get to know and really develop relationships with that You also have a harder time doing when you're getting in classrooms that have 30 plus kids in them. Um, so that's an avenue that I find t- former teachers getting really interested in. Um, I think there's a lot of there are a lot of former teachers who are very interested in, in launching other types of schools of their own as well. Um, you know, there's there's more established movements like Acton Academy and Montessori schools that these teachers can move into. Um, there's, you know, like playing support roles at um, at bigger, bigger companies that are, you know, like like some somewhere like Prenda where you can go work for Prenda HQ. Um I see, I see a lot of this. I talk to a lot of people who are entrepreneurs in the space who were former teachers. I think there's a, a really big movement in that direction of, of those types of people, which is really exciting because like they, they got into teaching for the right reason. They want to work with kids. They want to have a meaningful impact on kids' lives. And so like going and building infrastructure for themselves that allows them to do that more effectively, that's, that's really exciting for everybody involved. Yeah, that's great. I know I have um, current and former teachers that listen to the podcast and a lot of people I connect with on, on various socials and they're all very passionate people that love what they do. It's just there's other things that have kind of diminished their passions and gotten in the way of that over the years. And so 
I'm really excited not just for the parents and the students to have more options, but I'm excited for those teachers to have more options. And I think we're all better off for that. When there's more competition and more choice, it makes everybody better. And and maybe, hopefully, the, the public schools or the traditional schools can innovate if they start seeing themselves challenged from these other places and everybody gets an improved education. Um, but, you know, Hannah, we're getting a little short on time. I want to ask a couple rapid fire questions before we wrap up in a little bit. Um, I, I, when I was doing my research on you, I found some really interesting stuff about you that I think I, I want to just dive into here at the end. But the one thing that, that you said on your website is that you've never lived in an apartment for more than six months. You've lived a very nomadic lifestyle. So, uh, t- tell me a little bit about that and maybe where your favorite place that you've lived was. Yeah. Um, that might be the hardest question yet. <laughs> yeah. I've been a, um, semi-nomadic for, uh, five years maybe more than that. I'm not even really sure anymore. It all kind of runs together, but I was like fully nomadic for three. Um, Basically been on a three year road trip around the U S which is really awesome. Um, Favorite place that I've lived is really tough. I I, like Austin, Texas has become home um, because the the community there, the energy there is amazing. There's a lot of people working in education and Austin is kind of a a central hub for this. Um, But I spent a lot of time in Colorado over the years, really love it there. Uh, Charleston, South Carolina will always have a soft spot in my heart. That's another place every time I drive in. I'm like, yeah, this feels like coming home. Um, but there's a lot of places I've gone to and I've, I've loved it. There's, there's a lot of places to like in, in this big old world when you start traveling. Absolutely. I used to have a job where I traveled all over the U.S. and the world and every place has its beauty. All three of those places you, you mentioned are all wonderful. I'm a little partial to Colorado because that's where I'm based. But Austin is really interesting how it's becoming almost – the new Silicon Valley, there are so many startups and so many entrepreneurs and so much business happening there. I, I feel like in 10 years, Austin's going to be something really special. It, it already is, but it's going to be so many innovators and so many uh, unique people out there. Um, and Charleston is, is, I love the Carolinas, but Charleston's really cool too. Um, I also noticed you're a voracious reader. Um, I, I read a lot. I don't know if you could see it in my background. I got a big bookcase. I, I think I might hit like 20 to 30 books a year, which is all I can fit in. But I think you said you did like over 50 in, in 2020. So um, I, it's it's so hard to choose one. But is there like a, a book, a category of book, a, a, a genre that really stands out as most meaningful or, or your favorite? Man, um, I mean, there's a lot of, there are a lot of education books that I've read that have been really impactful, obviously. Um, Dumbing Us Down by John Taylor Gatto is always the first one that I recommend parents or people interested in education reading because that was the one that really cracked my my mind wide open on the topic. Um, but I read a pretty broad array. I try to read a lot of things that have nothing to do with education. Um, like I read a lot of books on, on startups. Zero to One by Peter Thiel is always a good one. Um, I've read... Um, like The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand was a really impactful novel for me. Um, I've read Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich I don't even know how many times at this point. Um, Jonathan Livingston's Seagull by Richard Bach is another one I've read many, many times. Um, I try to read a pretty healthy dose of fiction because I feel like it makes me a, a, a better writer. Um, so I read a lot of, like, I really like Hemingway. I like Barbara Kingsolver. Um 
it's a pretty long list of, of books that I've read and loved. I feel like my answer kind of varies by the day, but I do have, I, I don't post my reading list every year on my website. I'm not great at updating it. Uh, but 2020 was kind of an antisocial year. So I read a lot and I kept a list and I shared it. So I feel like if you go through that list, you kind that was a pretty, that was a pretty broad swath of the types of books that I read. I feel like it gives you a pretty good sense. Yeah, variety is is awesome. Um, it's I, I always have like three or four books going at a time because I like to. Some days I feel like the real dense nonfiction book, and you know I, I like to read fiction before bed because it helps my brain turn off, and I don't like watching TV before bed. So yeah, it's a variety of stuff. Um, but is there a book or maybe a couple of them that you tend to gift to others? Because I'm always interested to know what you think is so good that you tend to give other people. Um, right now it's a book called Don't Tell Me I Can't by Cole Summers, who was a 14 year old unschooler and entrepreneur out in Utah who was like managing his own ranch and obviously wrote his own autobiography. He like bought and flipped a house. He was owning, he was running multiple LLCs. Um, his autobiography is amazing and I have a whole stack of copies and I just like hand them out like candy to everybody who, who comes through. I'm like, oh my gosh, have you read this book yet? You must read it. Um, so that's, that's the big one now. And I would recommend anybody listening to this 100% read it because it is, it will, it will warp your brain. It is, uh, showing you a, a completely alternate reality to, to how kids can grow up and what they can do. It's a pretty amazing story. That's awesome. I haven't heard of that one and I'm adding it to my list. So thank you. Um, well, since our time is short, I want to give you a chance. Uh, I'll make sure I put links in the show notes, but where can people find you and connect with you or, or, um, you know, any of your projects? Yeah, the best place right now is either Twitter, you can find me personally on Twitter at Hannah Frankman, or you can find Rebel Educator at Rebel Educator. Um, and you can check out rebeleducator.co, which has a sort of a central hub for everything that we're doing. We can, use, can subscribe to the newsletter there. Um, you can, the podcast is about to launch, so you can check out podcast links there once it's live. Um, and, and feel free to DM me on Twitter too, if you have any additional questions after listening to this, if you want to continue the conversation, I'm always happy to chat. Perfect. Yeah. I'll put a link to both yours and Rebel Educators, uh, Twitter links and the the website link, which you said the the podcast will be linked from there. Well, Hannah, I always have one question I ask of all guests because I'm trying to curate what people are, are learning about. And I feel like you're probably learning about quite a lot. So if you could just think of like one thing that you've learned lately, whether it's something professional or something personal that's just cool, unique or interesting that you've learned lately, what would that be? Yeah, uh, this is a super random thing. Uh, this came from I couldn't sleep one night and I was reading Wikipedia Um the <laughs> so at sunset um the opposite so in, in the sunsets in the west in the eastern sky sometimes you'll get this like beautiful like pink and violet band and that's called the belt of venus and this is a like a, a phenomenon that happens specifically in like certain regions and certain atmospheric conditions and i was reading about this because it's a phenomenon that austin texas is known for um, there's, there's a couple other parts of the world. There's an air, a region in Greece and somewhere else that I can't remember that are like also known for this phenomenon. And when I read about it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like, I see this all the time. I didn't know there was a word for it. And that sent me tumbling down a rabbit hole, wanting to learn all about like, what are all the other weird names for like sunset phenomenon and other things that I didn't know had names for them. Um, I don't know if that's, if that, that's like a very weird niche thing. I don't know if that's exactly what you were looking for, but that's, that's a fun fact I've been thinking about a lot lately. 
That's awesome. I've seen those sunsets and they're beautiful. I didn't know the name. So that's something great that I learned. Thank you. <laughs> well, Hannah, it was, it was an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you, learn about, uh, you know, really some of the evolution going on, especially in the young, you know, the K-12 school space and even the higher education school space in our talk about praxis. Um, I, I'm excited to see the growth of Rebel Educator of, uh, you know, over time. And uh, we'll have to have you on again in the future once we you know, maybe check in in a little bit and see how everything's growing. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Absolutely. Well, everybody at home, thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.